Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys Section 3 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites By Amelia B. Edwards Section 3 Chapter 2 Venice to Longarone Part 1 Having risen at grey dawn, breakfasted at a little after five a.m., and pulled down to the station before half the world of Venice was awake, it was certainly trying to find that we had missed our train by about five minutes, and must wait four hours for the next. Nor was it much consolation, though perhaps some little relief, to upbraid the courier who had slept too late, and so caused our misfortune. Sulky and silent, he piled our bags in a corner and kept gloomily aloof, while we, cold, dreary, and discontented, sat shivering in a draughty passage close against the ticket office, counting the weary hours and excluded even from the waiting-rooms, which were locked up pour ordinaire supérieure, till half an hour before the time at which we could now proceed upon our journey. The time, however, dragged by somehow, and when, at ten o'clock, we at last found ourselves moving slowly out of the station, it seemed already like the middle of the day. And now again we traversed the great bridge and the long, still, glassy space of calm lagoon, and left the lessening domes of Venice far behind. And now, Mestra station being passed and the firm earth reached again, we entered on a vast flat all green with blossoming Indian corn, and intersected by a network of broad dikes populous with frogs. Heavens! How they croaked! Driving out from Ravenna to Dante's famous pine forest the other day, we had been almost deafened by them. But the shrill chorus of those Ravenna frogs was as soft music compared with the unbridled revelry of the Venetian brethren. Those drowned the very noise of the train, and reduced us to dumb show till we were out of their neighborhood. So we sped on the grey-blue mountains that we had been looking at so longingly from Venice these last three days, growing gradually nearer and more definite. Soon we begin to distinguish a foreground of lower hilltops, some dark with woods, others cultivated from base to brow and dotted over with white villages. Then by and by comes a point, midway as it were between Venetia and Tyrol, Whence, looking back towards Conegliano, we see the last tapering Venetian campanile, outlined against the horizon on the one hand, and the first bulbous Tyrolean steeple, shaped like the morion of a medieval man-at-arms, peeping above the roof of a little hillside hamlet on the other. The dikes and frogs are now left far behind. The line is bordered on both sides by feathery acacia hedges, and above the lower ranges of frontier mountains, certain strange jagged peaks which however are not dolomite began to disengage themselves from the cloudy background of the northern sky no they cannot be dolomite though they look so like it for we have been told that we shall see no true dolomite before to-morrow it is possible however as we know to see the antileo from venice on such a clear day as befalls about a dozen times in the course of a summer but here, even if the cloud were skyless, we are too close under the lower spurs of the outlying hills to command a view of greater heights beyond. Treviso comes next, apparently a considerable place. Here, according to Murray, is a fine annunciation of Titian to be seen in the Duomo, 
but we, alas, have no time to stay for it. Here also, as our fellow-traveller, the priest in the corner, says unctuously, opening his lips for the first and last time during the journey, they make good wine. Chi si fanno bambuino. At Treviso we drop a few third-class travellers, and being now just eighteen miles from Venice, and exactly half-way to Conegliano, go on again through a flat, flat country, past endless fields of maize and flats, past trailing vines reared as in the Tyrol on low slanting trellises close against the ground, past rich midsummer meadows where sunburnt peasants weigh knee-deep in wildflowers, and their flocks of turkeys are guessed at rather than seen, past villages and small stations and rambling farmhouses, and on towards the hills that are our goal. By and by, some four or five miles before Conegliano, the fertile plain is scarred by a broad tract of stones and sand, in the midst of which the Pieve, grey, shallow, and turbid, hurries towards the sea. Of this river we are destined to see and know more hereafter, among its native dolomites. And now we are at Conegliano, the last point to which the railway can take us, and which, in consequence of our four hours' delay this morning, we now have no time to see. And this is disappointing, for Conegliano must undoubtedly be worth a visit. We know of old palazzos decorated with fast-fading frescoes by Pordenone, of a theatre built by Segusinini, of an altar-piece in the Duomo by Sima of Conegliano, an exquisite early painter of this place, whose works are best represented in the Brera of Milan, and whose clear, dry, polished style holds somewhat of an intermediate place between that of Giovanni Bellini and Luca Signorelli. But if we would reach Longarone, our first stopping-place to-night, we must go on, so all we carry away is the passing remembrance of a neat little station, a bright, modern-looking town about half a mile distant, a sprinkling of white villas dotted over the neighboring hillsides, and a fine old castle glowering down from a warlike height beyond. And now the guard's whistle shrills in our ears for the last time for many weeks, and the train, bound for Trieste, puffs out of the station, disappears round a curve, and leaves us on the platform with our pile of bags at our feet and all our adventures before us. We look in each other's faces. We feel for the moment as Martin Chuzzlewit may have felt when the steamer landed him at Eden and there left him. Nothing, in truth, can be more indefinite than our prospects, more vague than our plans. We have Mayer's Maps, Ball's Guide to the Eastern Alps, Gilbert and Churchill's book, and all sorts of means and appliances, but we have not the slightest idea of where we are going, or of what we shall do when we get there. There is, however, no time now for misgivings, and in a few minutes we are again under way. Some three or four dirty post-omnibuses and bilious-looking yellow diligences are waiting outside, bound for Belluno and Longarone. Also one tolerable carriage with a pair of stout grey horses, which, after some bargaining, is engaged at the cost of a hundred lira. For this sum the driver is to take us to-day to Longarone, and to-morrow to Cortina in the Ampiso Valley, a distance altogether of something like seventy English miles. So the bags are stowed away, some inside, some outside, and presently, without entering the town at all, we drive through a dusty suburb and out again onto the open plain. A straighter road across a flatter country it would be difficult to conceive. 
bordered on each side by a row of thin poplars, and by interminable fields of Indian corn. It goes on for miles and miles, diminishing to a point in the far distance, like the well-known diagram of an avenue in perspective. And it is with peculiar attribute of this point to recede steadily in advance of us, so that we are always going on, as in a dreadful dream, and never getting any nearer. As for incidents by the way, there are none. We pass one of the lumbering yellow diligences that were standing erewhile at Conegliano Station. We see a few brown women hoeing in the Indian corn, and then for miles we neither pass a house nor meet a human being. It appears to me that hours must have gone by thus when I suddenly wake up, baked by the sun and choked by the dust, to find the whole party asleep, driver included, and the long distant hills now rising before us. Seeing a little town not a quarter of a mile ahead, a little town bright in sunshine against a background of dark woods, with a ruined castle on a height nearby, I knew at once that this must be Senita, the Senita that Titian loved, and that yonder woods and hills and ruined castle are the same he took for the landscape background to his St. Peter martyr. Here he is said to have owned property and land, and at Manza, four miles off, he built himself a summer villa. Now, moved by some mysterious instinct, the driver wakes up just in time to crack his whip, put his horses into a gallop, and clatter, as foreign veterini love to clatter, through the one street which is the town. But in vain, for Canida, silent, solitary, basking in the sun, with every shutter closed and only a lean dog or two loitering aimlessly about the open space in front of the church, is apparently as sound asleep as an enchanted town in a fairy tale. Not a curtain is put aside, not a face peers out upon us as we rattle past. The very magpie in his wicker cage outside the barber's shop is dozing on his perch, and scarcely opens an eye, though we make noise enough to rouse the seven sleepers. Once past the houses we fall back, of course, into the old pace, the gracious hills drawing nearer and unfolding fresh details at every step. And now at last green slopes and purple crags close round our path. The road begins to rise, a steep and narrow gorge, apparently a mere cleft in the mountains like the gorge of Pfeffers, opens suddenly before us, and from the midst of a nest of vines, mulberry trees and chestnuts, the brown roofs and campaniles of Serraval lift themselves into sight. Serraval, though it figures on the map in smaller type than Canida, which is, or was, an Episcopal residence, is yet a much more considerable place, covering several acres and straggling up into the mouth of the gorge through which the Mescio comes hurrying to the plain. Strictly speaking, perhaps, there is now no Canida and no Serraval, the two townships having been united of late by the Italian government under the name of Vittoria but they lie a full mile apart, and no one seems as yet to take kindly to the new order of things. Again our driver cracks his whip and urges his horses to a canter, and so, with due magnificence, we clatter into the town, a quaint, picturesque, crumbling, world-forgotten place, with old stone houses abutting on the torrent, and a duomo that looks as if it had been left unfinished three hundred years ago, and gloomy arcades vaulting the footways on each side of the principal street, as in Strasbourg and Bern. Dashing across the bridge and into the piazza, we pull up before one of the two inns which there compete for possession of the infrequent traveller, 
for Saravalne boasts not only a piazza and a duomo, but two albergi, two shabby little cafés, a regia posta, and even a lottery office with Chi si guilcono por Venezia painted in red letters across the window. Here, too, the inhabitants are awake and stirring. They play at dominoes in their shirt-sleeves outside the cafés. They play at mora in the shade of doorways and arcades. They fill water-jars, wash lettuces, and gossip at the fountain. They even patronize the drama, as may be seen by the erection of a temporary puppet-theatre, patronized by His Majesty the King of Italy and all the sovereigns of Europe, on a slope of waste ground close against the church. Nor is wanting the usual score or two of idle men and boys who immediately start up from nowhere in particular, and swarm open-mouthed about the carriage, staring at its occupants as if they were members of a travelling menagerie. But Saraville has something better than puppets and an idle population to show. The Duomo contains a large painting of the Madonna and Child in Glory, by Titian, executed to order some time between the years 1542 and 1547, a grand picture belonging to what may perhaps be called the second order of the master's greatest period, and of which it has been lately said by an eminent traveller and critic that it would alone repay a visit to Saraville, even from Venice. With respect to the treatment of this fine work, Mr. Gilbert, whose admirable book on Titian and Cadore leaves nothing for any subsequent writer to add on these subjects, says, It is one of the grandest specimens of the master, and in very fair preservation. It represents the virgin and child in glory surrounded by angels, who fade into the golden haze above. Heavy-volumed clouds support and separate from earth this celestial vision, and below, standing on each side, are the colossal and majestic figures of St. Andrew and St. Peter, the former supporting a massive cross, the latter holding aloft, as if challenging denial of his faithfulness, the awful keys. Between these two noble figures, under a low horizon line, is a dark lake amidst darker hills, where a distant sail recalls the fisherman and his craft. Composition, drawing, color, are all dignified and worthy of the master. Cadore, page 43. End of section 3, chapter 2, part 1.